0: respect energy I mean it really does need to be respected it does so much for us it is a constant source of safety and security a constant source of well-being it is as I called it earlier lifeblood for our economy and our social life it gives us great gifts as well the gift of mobility what would we be like as a society if we didn't have the mobility that we enjoy (laughs) The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation, and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Bulwark's Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson.
1: Welcome to this week's episode. I'm sitting here this afternoon at the Capital Girls City Center with my guest, John Huffmeister, actually retired, but former president of Shell Oil. And you sit on several boards, is that correct?
0: That's correct. Industry boards. Yes.
1: Excellent. And you're also teaching at several universities. Yes,
0: I teach at University of Houston, Kansas State University, and also Arizona State University.
1: That's quite the hike.
0: Well, I tell you, it's great to be able to engage young people in what the future of energy is all about. My class is the next 50 years of energy and environmental protection, so we cover a lot of ground.
1: I almost feel like I should sign up for that.
0: (laughs) It's a ball. You get to write a 50-year plan for the future of the United States energy system. That's awesome.
1: Awesome. So before we get too much further into it, I wanted to please ask everyone to support the show by taking a few moments, leave a review in iTunes. So John, let's talk about how you got started in the industry.
0: I started late in my career. Actually, I was almost 50 years old when I was recruited to Royal Dutch Shell. I spent a great deal of time, 25 years prior to that in technical companies, but technical companies that use energy, not produce energy. So companies like General Electric, Allied Signal, which is now called Honeywell International, and also a company in the telecom business, Northern Telecom. And then at age 49, I was recruited to Royal Dutch Shell, starting in The Hague way back in 1997. And I was recruited into a global job. I was the group human resource director for Royal Dutch Shell Worldwide with the ambition, based on the the, the recruiting story, to help change the company for the 21st century. It was a great job. It was a wonderful group of people to work with. But I must say, coming into the energy company like Royal Dutch Shell, where almost everybody is a lifer in the industry, I was truly the new kid on the block. And as the new kid on the block, I had to find out how to make my way. And starting by what's the difference between the upstream and the downstream? It was that basic. Wow.
1: Yeah, so at 50. So you had a little bit of a learning curve, huh?
0: Fortunately, I've always tried to keep fresh and always think about what do I not know. And I'm very good at knowing what I don't know. And therefore, I can pursue what do I need to know. And so getting to know the, the oil and gas industry, and at the time, Shell was already getting into renewables, solar, wind, hydrogen, biofuels, back in the late nineties. So it was really a broad based approach to energy. Most of the time, however, was spent with upstream and downstream traditional aspects of the oil and gas business.
1: So you didn't touch midstream?
0: Oh in the midst well of course I had company wide. So I I was involved in midstream, also involved in the chemicals, shell chemicals business. So the whole portfolio was something that I would focus on. So I had to learn my way through all the various parts of the portfolio, including the new renewable energies. Wow, that's a lot to take on. But most importantly, it was taking on the world itself. I'd been in global companies, but I had always lived in my home country. Now I'm living in The Hague, in the Netherlands, part-time, and living in London, England, part-time. So, But that was my home, London or The Hague, and places in both cities, and then traveling the world, because Shell is fundamentally a worldwide company with assets on every continent except Antarctica.
1: Yeah, so don't they have the same, like the conference room is exactly the same at every single
0: one of their offices? No, there, there are quite a few differences around the around the world. There are some similarities. Probably the most basic similarity is the commitment to, to health and safety. Everywhere you go in that company, wherever you happen to be in the world, you start a meeting with a health and safety minute.
1: Well, that's that's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. So Can-
0: you're, you're forever reminded and also the second thing about my experience at Shell was there was a chronic constant reminder of what are the values of the company. And, and they keep popping up every time I think about it. It's you know integrity, respect, and honesty. And so the uh, respect for people. And so it just it was always part of every location you went to, the core values of the company, and health and safety.
1: Wow. So I see all the advantages here, but what, what were some of the disadvantages you had to face besides you living out of your comfort zone in a different country?
0: I think the greatest was to appreciate the importance of culture, indigenous culture, wherever you go. When you grow up in the United States of America, you're very proud. You're taught this is an exceptional country. This is an exceptional history of a country and when you are in other people's countries you're not one of them you're you're the guest sometimes not a welcome guest cuz you're also from headquarters <laughs> <And> so <laughs> so whether it's the fact that you are an american by by birth visiting in someone else's country and you're from the headquarters of the company
1: and you're also hr right
0: <laughs> and at that time i was uh, in in the position of hr director yes so you've got all these doubtful moments when people are looking at you saying, why are you really here? And and then what you want to do is learn, engage, bring what you brought to do, and mostly meet people, mostly get to know the people who are there so that you have a good understanding of the talent base wherever the talent happens to exist all over the company. That's what I enjoyed about the human resource work that I did for that period of time is getting to know and understand the talent of a company, how they became as talented as they are, and what they want to do with their talents in terms of their career at Shell. So it was a a great experience. And and what I'm very proud of to this day, the HR systems that we had in place for identifying talent and developing that talent have paid off in the fact that from 2004 until today, 2019, The CEOs of Shell, who have replaced one another, have all come from that same talent base, and I knew every one of them. That's awesome. So 15 years running, consistent CEO placements with an internal talent development process so that everybody knows who the CEO is, and the CEO knows basically who everybody else is. So it's that internal consistency. Really well-run companies look after the succession in a very serious way. They don't look in the outside market for some 100-day wonder to come in and make all the difference in the world. They take the time to develop the people over many years, even decades, so that they're ready when the opportunity is there. And that's when you know somebody takes talent seriously.
1: Yes, tremendously seriously. So let's talk about some of the boards you're on.
0: Sure. One board is fascinating. It's a brand-new company. It's called Ioneer. It's headquartered in Sydney, Australia, and its focus is to develop the largest North American lithium and boron mine yet to be built. We have an asset in western Nevada, southwestern Nevada, which we will use to produce probably 370 plus million tons of lithium over the next 30 years. It's not well known yet because we're still in the feasibility study stage, but we've we've come through the pre-feasibility study with flying colors. Now we're doing the serious, detailed work of what it will take to build the mine. We only have about a handful of employees in the company, just enough to do the feasibility work. But by the end of this year, twenty nineteen, we should have we should finish the feasibility study. Then we move into the permitting stage, and hopefully in twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one We're into producing lithium and boron. Lithium for the battery car marketplace and boron for the renewable energy business where, for example, solar energy uses a lot of glass. That glass needs to be hardened. Boron is a primary chemical mineral to harden glass. And it does other things for insulation and whatnot. So I still think of it as an energy initiative, an energy industry project, but it's not oil and gas. It's very much into the electrification of the fleet and building of storage batteries for whether vehicles or utility storage or whatever it may be. We're only 300, roughly 300 kilometers away from Reno, Nevada. Ah, that sounds like trouble. Reno, well, (laughs) Reno is where Tesla is building the mega battery factory. Oh. So hopefully one day Tesla may be a customer. Other companies may be a customer. In fact, I saw where Shell just bought a German battery company recently. So who knows? We may have an opportunity to sell to my former company. That's exciting. But, but whoever is making batteries, those are our prospective customers. Whoever's making glass and other products for insulation is our prospective customer for boron. This will be an open pit mine. We'll spend pretty close to, well, many hundreds of millions of dollars to get it up and running. And I'm very excited about it. So that's one board. And there are about four or five of us on the board. And then a second company is called A-Plus Services. A-Plus is a Madrid-based company, and it focuses on the test, inspection, and certification of multiple industries, including automotive, energy, construction, aerospace, And our mission is to make sure that people can rely upon the facilities or the uh, infrastructure that they're depending upon. So, for example, in automotive, you want to know that the parts in your car are certified. Of course. (laughs) That they're going to do what they say they're going to do. So we make sure that the certification, all of the test and inspection processes are up to speed If you're running a refinery, you want to make sure that the metal in the high-pressure, high-temperature operations are certified to be run at the temperature and the pressure that's specified. We do that kind of certification. In the testing of uh, cybersecurity, you want to make sure you're protected. We do that kind of testing as well. So it's a whole wide range of test inspection certification. Probably a good part of the business is pipeline inspection. You really want to make sure pipelines do what they're supposed to do. Absolutely. And so we do the cert pipeline work in many countries around the world. Also power generating stations where any any place where there's high pressure, high temperature. We do that kind of certification. We also do non-destructive testing, which is a big part of That oil actually and sounds gas. really really cool. So it's a it's a company of about 20,000 technical engineers. <laughs> and so <it's, laughs> There's
1: a whole lot of socializing going on, right?
0: <laughs> I've spent my career with technical people, and I, I love them to death.
1: Yeah, they're some of my favorite people as well. What other boards? You said there was at least five of them or four of them.
0: Well, there's a couple of not-for-profit boards that I serve on, and the most important one to me is the National Urban League. The National Urban League is about a, almost 109 years old now. I was the chairman for seven years of the National Urban League. We have a board of about 45 people, and we are an organization of about 95 subsidiary units around the country, cities all across the country, focusing on the development of urban America through the people in urban America. Probably 97, 98% African American in terms of its orientation. The National Urban League got its start with the great migration of the southern former slave populations to the north, now that they are free, and to the assimilation and acceptance of people into societies north as they left the south. And so we started in places like Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, Boston, New York, and and Newark, and, and so cities where people migrated to looked after their housing, their education, their nutrition, their health. And here we are 109 years later still working on it. We've had great success. We touch upwards of a million people a year. It's all volunteer, it's all not for profit, and we've been recognized by, you know, presidential administrations from, you know, the 1908 onwards. It's been pretty pretty exciting. And the greatest aspect of it is that the volunteer movement within the National Urban League, incorporates so many tens of thousands of people of all ages, from teenagers all the way to senior citizens. The volunteer movement is really very powerful. And another not-for-profit board is, which I care a lot about, is the Center for Houston's Future. I live here in Houston, and for many years I've been a part. I'm I'm now on the advisory. I'm sort of emeritus now. I'm not as young as I used to be, so... (laughs) I get to be an emeritus board member, and so I get to advise rather than actually be the fiduciary board. But Center for Houston's future is very much about what do we do next, over-the-radar type view of how the future unfolds. So what is Houston's future, not in the next quarter, the next six months, the next year or two, that's really the role of the Greater Houston Partnership, where I also served on the board previously, I'm emeritus there as well and was once upon a time the chairman of the Greater Houston Partnership. And, and so caring about the future of Houston matters in a city of our size and our scope, our complexity, and our impact on the world. Between the health center and the oil and gas industry and the academic centers of, of Houston, we have worldwide impact. A lot of people who live here may not realize that. But the rest of the world looks to Houston for new and different and better and so, what are we doing from a community standpoint to make sure that we continue to support that new and different and better in terms of how we you know, approach all the various markets that we serve and the populations that, that are served by Houston? And as well, do we have the infrastructure, the talent development, and all of the other attributes of a great community so that we continue to not just hold our space, but to actually increase our space? as time goes on.
1: Our city's huge. And we have so many different people from all over the planet.
0: And there's something unique about Houston that many cities don't have. We don't hide behind hills, do we? No. There's not a hill in sight. (laughs) So in many cities around the country, around the world, there are hills everywhere. You build the city on a, a collection of hills or even in the mountains, but we're all exposed. We're all exposed to weather. We're all exposed to each other. We're all exposed to our lifestyles coming together in this space. We spread out a lot, that's for sure. But we don't have groups of people that get to hide. Everybody's out there. And so we really need to think about how we take care of all groups across the city because they're all part of who we are. makes us a little vulnerable, doesn't it? It can if we're not doing the right things for one another. And we really don't have space for conflict. So we really need to have the dialogue, the engagement, the rapport, the understanding, and the sensitivities across all the different population groups from north to south, from east to west. Uh, Because once you hit the city limits of of the the metropolitan area, you've got a good 60 to 90-minute drive ahead of you. And you're still in the city.
1: (laughs) And we were both late getting here just because they closed off a ramp. So, I mean, (laughs) it it varies from day to day.
0: There's a lot of traffic in this town. Oh, boy.
1: Yes. We're up to three out loops now.
0: Yes. Yes. We'll we'll see how many more we can build.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) So let's talk about you as a professor and, and, and the classes you teach.
0: The most important aspect of energy in terms of the younger populations is realizing it is essential lifeblood to the society that we live in and to the economy that supports all of us. Most people take energy for granted. Most people don't think any more about energy than whether the switch is working or not. When they flip the light switch, did the light go on or not? If it goes on, fine. They don't give it another thought. If it doesn't go on, they say, "What's wrong? Mm-hmm. Is it the light bulb? The light bulb? Is it the wiring?" Or is it the power plant that isn't delivering the electrons? Most people don't know the difference between molecules for energy and electrons for energy. One is electrical, the other is fuel. And, and so it's the opportunity to really open up the minds of young people, young adults. They're mostly college seniors and juniors that I teach, some graduate students. Opening up their minds to the possibilities of energy and how important energy is as an essential, as I said, lifeblood. Of the system that they're about to step into when they finish school. And understanding energy in its four primary segments, which is just as important as energy itself. So, energy breaks down into four segments as I teach it. The first is supply where do we get our energy from? It's a basic question. Whether that's coal, oil, gas, nuclear, hydropower, Wind, solar, biofuels, geothermal, and I also include hydrogen, which is not energy but is an energy carrier in the mix. Then second segment is efficiency. How do we do more with less? Energy is finite. And so we want to preserve molecules and electrons for the future. So how do we use efficiency to benefit all of us so that there's more for everybody later without using it all up sooner. Then the third thing is the environmental impact of energy. And what do we do to have a sustainable energy system where we can continue to use all forms of energy and doing it in a sustainable way so that the biosphere, the earth, is not negatively impacted and people are not negatively impacted. And this is largely an analysis and a study of how the physical, the liquid, and the gaseous potential pollution is eliminated. Why can't we have net zero pollution coming from energy? We can. It takes time, it takes technology, it takes applications, but we should have a really sustainable energy system where we don't worry about climate change or global warming, not because it's not real, it is in my view, but because we've addressed the waste. By not addressing the waste, we create the conditions for negatively impacting the biosphere, whether that's land, water, or air. We have no excuse not to preserve and protect the land, the water, and the air, especially as energy producers. Then the fourth part is the most fun, and that's infrastructure. And infrastructure is two parts. It's the physical infrastructure, which is all the wells, the pipelines, the coal mines, the railroads, the, the refineries, the gas stations, you name it. But the even more fun part is what I call the soft infrastructure, which is all the rules, regulations, laws, lobby groups, government organizations, non-government organizations, all of the people in their respective and different ways of impacting energy, whether they like it or they don't like it, they're all trying to have an impact on energy. And that soft infrastructure is critical to a viable, and flourishing energy system. But most people don't give it a second thought. In fact, they find it boring. But the reality is... I can see that. I can see that. The reality (laughs) is, without the government involved, I say to my students, there is not a molecule of energy produced that isn't approved by the government. There's not an electron of energy produced that is not approved by the various levels of government. I can vouch for that. So if you have to work with the government to produce the molecules or the electrons isn't it better to work with the government rather than work against the government? Exactly. Which sometimes involves educating the government to what you're trying to do, because they're not necessarily experts in this field. So so teaching students this whole four-sector approach to energy really opens up windows and doors for them to understand energy in ways they've never considered.
1: Yeah, or ever heard because of how negative a lot of people portray this in industry to be
0: That's right the the course requires a lot a lot of reading because there's there's only 15 weeks to cram in enough information to do what the course is intended to do which is to get the students to write a plan for the next 50 years of producing molecules and electrons for the US economy and they work in groups because it's far far too complex for an individual So they work in small groups, and they work together. They get started about four to five weeks into the course. And in 10 weeks, I tell them, they get to do what presidents of the United States have promised to do for decades and never done, and that is to create an energy plan for the United States. Here we have the biggest economy in the world, the oldest democracy in the world, and we don't have an energy plan for this country and never have had. We live by the day, and when we live by the day, and we can't get through a single day of any month or any year without foreign imports of oil, we are vulnerable 24-7 to insufficient supply or some other type of a problem with the supply chain of energy, and we know that Americans do not like gas lines. Yeah. There is nothing worse in our society than a gas line (laughs) because it's so uncertain (laughs) and it's so rife with peril. People don't like each other in gas lines. And I can remember, and I tell the story in a book that I wrote called Why We Hate the Oil Companies, a situation in 1973 with the Arab oil embargo where I bought some gasoline when I started my career in Cleveland, Ohio. Where the person, the attendant at the pump, is wearing two guns on his hips. He's got his holster on and he's got two six shooters in his holsters. And I said, You would actually use those guns? He said, Nobody's going to hurt my gas station. And so he was ready to <laughs> go. And that's how incredibly important this is. This is life and death to people. And so the fact that we don't have an energy plan. The fact that we spend all our time hating nuclear energy when it's the most powerful form of energy we know on Earth, and it's the cleanest form of energy once we manage the radioactivity. But if we shifted from uranium to thorium as the primary feedstock for uranium, we wouldn't have the radioactivity challenge that we have with uranium. We'd still have a challenge, but not like uranium. And you can't make nuclear weapons from the nuclear waste of thorium, but you can with uranium. So we could solve a lot of problems if we would take your nuclear industry seriously. And so my students get to learn what we could do better, what we could do the right way, rather than the way we've done things historically, which isn't always the right way. And so having an energy plan gives you the ability to plan 10 years out, 25 years out, 50 years out.
1: So why do you think there, that no president has kept that promise? Why do you think that, they, that an energy plan has not been made?
0: because the American people haven't held them to account. President's promise or candidate's promise, and I think as a general rule, and I'm a political scientist by education, not a technical person, but by and large, politicians are not held to account by the people that choose them. And I think, you know, in, in corporations, in all kinds of other occupations in this life, people are held to account. If you're a doctor or a dentist, you're held to account by the patients you serve. If you're a, a corporate executive, you're held to account by your shareholders. If you're a technician on, a, an, on a, an inspection station, you're held to account for the fact that whatever you certify works. If you're a production employee, you're held to account for the quality of what you build. Everybody's held to account, but we don't hold our elected officials to account. And that's the fundamental reason why we don't have an energy plan in this country.
1: So what you're saying is I need to tweet somebody.
0: Yes. Well, you need to vote against the people that don't do what they say they're going to do. And and because that their job is to serve the people of this country. That is the oath of office that they take. And so many of them walk away from it, not just presidents, but senators, Congress, people,
1: state representatives, state,
0: local council members of cities, And and so that making democracy work is not easy. I learned that much in political science. Yes. But how we hold elected officials who promise to serve the public to account is the major issue we face across the board, not just in energy policy, but in policy across the board. Excellent. Whether it's health care, whether it's you know, housing policy, whether it's tax policy, you name it, we don't do a good job as an electorate of holding our elected officials to account.
1: Or they just don't listen.
0: In which case, why are they in office for 20 years, 30 years, some 40 years?
1: Term limits. Anyway, I'm not trying to get too political, but right. so with this vast amount of experience you've had uh, across the entire energy industry, what piece of advice could you give our audience?
0: Respect energy. I mean, it really does need to be respected. It does so much for us. It is a constant source of safety and security, a constant source of well-being. It is, as I called it earlier, lifeblood for our economy and our social life. It gives us great gifts as well, the gift of mobility. What would we be like as a society if we didn't have the mobility that we enjoy And whether it goes back to good old Dinah Shore in the 1950s singing, see the USA in your Chevrolet, (laughs) which was her uh, advertiser, it just does so much for people that people don't respect it. I've talked to employees in the energy companies that I've dealt with who say they don't want their child working in the energy business because of the layoffs, because of the cyclicality, because of the volatility of the oil price. And they just don't want their children exposed to that kind of risk And I think, wow, that's disappointing because of what energy really does for society. There's a wonderful little book out called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels by Alex Epstein. It's a very good little book which tells the the real story of quality of life because fossil fuels enable it to be so. And whether that affects nutrition, medication, the recreation, or whatever other aspect of life we enjoy— We get to do it because we have energy. And then we have the keep it in the ground crowd who say, let's get rid of all fossil fuels. They really don't understand the implications of what they're saying, or I don't think they would say it, certainly not with the passion with which they say it. And the industry has a responsibility to clean it up. I'm a big believer and a promoter of how we get carbon out of the atmosphere, for example, or how we get to negative carbon management in the future of the fossil fuel industry and also the particulates and the other nasty materials that we release because of how we make energy. But when people are considering energy and the future of the world, you can't consider the future without it. But it's not respected, and that's what bothers me the most. I think that irks my nerves, too. People don't know enough to respect it, and what a disappointment. And so they take it for granted, or they waste it, or they think of it as a secondary, not a primary, part of their life and that always is the case until the power goes out or until the gas tanks run dry after a hurricane let's say and suddenly you realize oh my goodness they panic they become you know very disconcerted very quickly because what do we do without energy we don't have a lifestyle for myself and my wife we live on the 26th floor of a building how in the world are we going to get up and down 26 actually 52 <laughs> flights it's not going to be
1: by the stairs.
0: <laughs> so we deeply appreciate energy every time we come in or out of the building. And I'm, that's a, I'm being facetious, obviously, but we could actually take the stairs if we had to. But it would take a while. A little bit. <laughs> but I think, you know, emergency responders. There's talk now of this so-called Green New Deal, the silliness of what affects those who believe or think that that somehow there's a magical, mystical formula for a Green New Deal, where in 10 years' time, we can eliminate airplanes. 10 years' time, we can eliminate all internal combustion engine vehicles. But
1: how'd you get here?
0: (laughs) Uh, Exactly. How'd you get here? And I, I did some checking, because the advocates of the Green New Deal say that we can replace airplanes with trains. Well, just check the numbers. 870 million flight segments took place in this country in 2017. 870 million for 320 million people. Amtrak has capacity to carry 15 million passengers a year. So the number 870 million versus 15 million. Imagine squeezing 870 million people into a 15 million sized Amtrak system. No, it's such utter nonsense yes. that anyone who you know looks at it ought to read it. I read it the first day it came out, so I read all whatever it was, 14, 16 pages. And it's written by people who are simply aspirants to a future that they get to create themselves without any grounding in common sense or without any grounding in reality. And yet these people think they're right. and And I think it's not enough to criticize them. They need to be educated. They really need to be sat down and talked to in the way in which they can understand to realize the future of energy covers a wide swath of sources of energy. And the ability to clean energy up is as wide as the swath of energy that we produce. And we have the technologies, the know-how, and the people skills to be able to do that. And that's what we should be. The second thing we should tell people is we can clean up the energy system so that we can continue to use all forms of energy. Yeah,
1: yeah, kind of, some of that pretty much chapped my hide. Just, anyway, what book influenced you the most? I know you said you, you wrote a book, you've mentioned the one by Alex Epstein. What influenced you?
0: Well, I have to tell you, I read all the time. And, for example, I'm reading an incredible book right now called The Silk Roads. And the author's name is Frankopan. And it is about the history of the world, looking at it from the perspective, not of Europe and America, but looking at it from the perspective of the Middle East and going east and west from the Middle East. Because society and culture and all that we know really emanated from the middle region of the world, or what we call the middle region of the world, all the way from the Pacific to the western part of the Mediterranean before we discovered North and South America. So there's a lot of history there. Now, that's not my favorite book. It's a good book, a very good book. And my favorite book actually has something to do with how people work together and how they are led. The book is called Requisite Organization. Requisite Organization is about understanding how we think, how we prioritize, how we decide, and how we think about complexity and manage complexity, and how we think about the time of the future over which we think. Is that a day, a month, six months, a year, five years, 10 years? CEOs of major companies like Shell or Exxon or the President of the United States, they need the capacity to think 25, 30, 50 years into the future and be able to handle the complexities of all the things they're thinking about in their brains. So there's a different level of capacity of individuals that we need to recognize is valuable. And the author's name is Elliot Jacques. And it's a, he's a brilliant man. He has a couple of, he's deceased now, but he has multiple PhDs. He was a psychologist, psychiatrist, and an anthropologist. All oh, these wow. things combined. <laughs> none of which are easy to learn. No, not at all. But he wrote this book called Requisite Organization. He also wrote a book called Executive Leadership, And so it really is the responsibility of those who lead to understand and appreciate the capabilities of all the people they serve as a leader, all the people they lead. And there are some people who really are best focusing on the day, some focusing on the week, some on the month, some in the year, some on the five year. And so we all have different strengths and weaknesses in that regard. Not everybody is equal in terms of capacity or capability as everyone else. So helping people be fit for purpose, which is a to me that's a great phraseology. Fit for purpose. What is their purpose? And are they fit for it? So if you're developing ministers of the cloth, let's say, if you're developing doctors, if you're developing a scientists, so or you're developing electronic technicians, or you're developing people who clean or people who cook or people who teach. All of these people have different skills and abilities, so understanding how they think, how they handle complexity, how they think about time, it's important for all of us to understand that. So that's probably the best book I ever read. That's awesome. I'm actually going to look that up on Amazon.
1: (laughs) Excellent. What's your most used
0: business tool? My most used business tool, without a doubt, is my ability to communicate. Excellent. Communication is at the heart of how a leader leads. You cannot intuit leadership. You have to sell leadership. You have to tell leadership. You have to communicate constantly. And the notion, a leader who is not engaging his or her own people, who's not engaging his or her stakeholders, his or her shareholders, his or her constituents, that person is not leading. It's the engagement and the communications of that engagement and the authenticity of those communications, which I think are essential. So my best business tool is my ability to communicate. And that requires empathy. It requires honesty. It requires transparency. And most of all, it requires walking the talk. You can't make it up. You can't just point a finger, go there.
1: Because at the end of the day, actions speak louder than words.
0: They do. And people watch constantly. One of the things you learn when you're in a high-level position is you're always on. There's no commercial break.
1: Right. <laughs> there's
0: no There's no stopping. And whether you are relaxing on a Friday night thinking nobody's looking at you. Everybody's oh, watching. Oh, yes, they are. To think that you could somehow play down an arrest warrant for whatever the arrest might be for, fighting with your next-door neighbor or <laughs> getting into some kind of a you know, kerfuffle with anybody. You need to have the maturity and the balance and the emotional strength. And the patience, right? To not get yourself in trouble because people are watching. And if you do get in trouble, then you better explain it. You better say, look, I made a mistake. Own up to it. Yeah. And so nobody's perfect and nobody's going to live a perfect life. But, you know, the leader is a constant communicator. And I think that's been my best tool.
1: Excellent. That's great. That's terrific. And I, I, this is probably not applicable any longer, but who's your most respected competitor?
0: In the oil and gas industry, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> where do you begin? <laughs> you know, you look at the the folks that have been around for a while, and anybody from the old Standard Oil organization.
1: Actually, I have family that worked for Standard which Oil. Which
0: is, you know, today the, the granddaddy of them all is ExxonMobil. But then you have Chevron, you've got Conoco, you've got you know, BP, you've got Total. I mean, these people, these are companies that have incredible people, incredible histories. But then look at the fracking industry. Look at all the startups. Oh, Lo- yeah. Look at the, you know, uh, two pickup trucks, a drill and a dog. And, and you got a business, you <laughs> yeah, know, you, you can do. go go frack, go drill. <laughs> and, and so I just I think everybody who's out there, who's honest, and trying to make a living producing molecules, they have my greatest respect because it's not easy work. It's technically very challenging. There's a lot of risk associated. So they better be courageous and they better be resourceful because they're going to need it to handle the risk. But I I would say that including colleagues, colleagues are also competitors because each is trying to get more resources for their project than the other guy. And so... (laughs) So there's an internal competition as well as an external competition. And frankly, I think that's one of the great things about the industry. By and large, the industry is made up of talented people. And so the respect for talented people, they're all competitors of one sort or another. Some may be getting a paycheck from the same bank account as you, but they're still looking out for their interests and you need to give them space to be successful but when it's the Exxon competitor or the Chevron competitor or the BP competitor, my hat's off to all of them.
1: They're Interesting very perspective. They're very
0: good at what they do.
1: Yes, they are. What's your most important lesson learned?
0: I, I would say that humility connected to being authentic. As I used to work for GE when Jack Welch ran GE, and people sometimes thought of him as high and mighty. Well, there was a humble side to Jack as well. He would say, you know, my mother tried not to raise a stupid person. And that's me. And and so she tried to make me smart. She taught me a lot. But sometimes I fall back into old habits and I make mistakes. And I think the authenticity of his humility taught me a lesson. When I was, let's say, in my 30s, and I'm watching this great individual called Jack Welch, or other executives around him, and to, to see them be humble, uh, to see them on, admit their mistakes, to be honest about the fact that sometimes they're tired, to be honest about the fact that sometimes they just need a rest, a little catnap, and to realize they're human beings. Uh, I think that's a, a very important part of being who we are. You can't be who you're not. People who try to be who they're not always fail. That they're is true. They're always caught out. And we see examples of them. You know the the hundred-day wonder CEOs that don't last a year. I mean, these are the kind of people that just they they think they're better than they are, and they don't rely on others. They don't integrate or interact with others adequately. And and I will tell you, I have learned so much in my professional career working with not-for-profit executives or employees who aren't making a whole lot of money, but who are delivering incredibly valuable service to people that really need service in the not-for-profit world. And I'm thinking of the National Urban League here. These folks are genuine, they're humble, they are determined to be successful at what they do. They motivate me, they excite me, because they're doing what they believe in. And I think that should be true of everybody. Do what you believe in.
1: I like that, that really hits home for me, thank you. What's your favorite podcast?
0: My favorite podcast, actually, I've listened to quite a few Houston Business Journal. Oh, yeah, podcasts. Yeah, yeah. They do a good job. They talk to a lot of interesting people. And I have to admit, I'm a business junkie. I love business. <laughs> I'm also a you politi-
1: don't say. <laughs> I'm also
0: a political junkie. I love politics, <laughs> or at least reading about it. I'm oh, not a politician. Plenty of that. Yeah, there's myself.
1: plenty of that to read these days. So,
0: but because I'm a business junkie, I love hearing the stories of other companies, of other business people. I'm not particularly entrepreneurial in the nature of how I lead a business. When I became president of Shell Oil, yes, we had innovation and entrepreneurial organizations set up within the company so that they could, we could tap into people who are innovative and entrepreneurial. I'm more a structured organization person. How do you leverage and get a successful movement going throughout the organization that involves tens of thousands, not tens of people, but tens of thousands of people, because that's the, that's the heart of what you do. And so getting the tens of thousands oriented towards the same goal and purpose, I'm more structured or built that way and view each one of them as an important part of the process. And so Houston Business Journal just brings all kinds of stories to light. It's fascinating to listen to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, so because I want our listeners to be well-dressed and most importantly safe, be sure to go to www.bulwark.com forward slash podcast to win a Bulwark FR shirt and base layer. No purchase necessary to win. See official rules for details. So John, thank you so much for joining me today. And I hope your traveling out of this area of town. (laughs) Isn't so terrible as when you got here.
0: Well, thanks Paige for the opportunity.
1: If people want to reach out, to you and or get to know more about the boards you sit on and your classes? How can they go about doing that? Uh, I think that?
0: the easiest to go to Facebook and pull up Citizens for Affordable Energy.
1: Perfect. And I'll make sure that we put a link in the show notes for that. Do you have a LinkedIn profile?
0: Yes, I do. It's my name.
1: Okay. And that will also be in the show notes. So that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door.
0: Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Bulwark's Oil & Gas Industry Leaders podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.